This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. The new film Red, White, and Royal Blue is a classic enemies-to-lovers rom-com, though in this case, the rom is queer, and the calm arises out of the fact that there are huge geopolitical stakes involved. That's because the two lovers in question are the son of the American president and the prince of England. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Red, White, and Royal Blue on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is culture critic and reporter Serena Turos. Hey, Serena. Hey, Glenn. Also with us is filmmaker, pop culture critic, and iHeartRadio producer, Joelle Monique. Welcome back, Joelle. Hey, good to be back. Good to have you. Rounding out the panel is Jeffrey Masters. He's the host of the podcast LGBTQ&A and senior producer at the New Yorker Radio Hour. Hey, Jeffrey. Hey, y'all. Hey. So let's get to it. In the film Red, White, and Royal Blue, Alex is a working-class Mexican-American kid with a chip on his shoulder who is now the son of the president. He's played by Taylor Zakar Perez. Henry is the sensitive, pillow-lipped prince of England who finds the corridors of privilege stuffy and suffocating. He's played by Nicholas Gallagher. They don't like each other at first, but when they cause a pastry-related scandal at a royal wedding, their handlers force them to embark upon a shared PR campaign to convince the world that they can actually stand each other. Guess what happens? The film also stars Uma Thurman as the president. I'm going to read that again because I like saying it. The film also (laughs) stars Uma Thurman as the president, Sarah Shahi as Zara, her deputy chief of staff, and Rachel Hilson as Nora, Alex's wildly supportive best friend. That's kind of the Judy Greer role, we would call it, I guess, the go-to-him role. (laughs) That's what she's doing. The movie was directed by Matthew Lopez, the Tony-winning playwright of The Inheritance. He co-wrote the screenplay with Ted Mallower. It's based on the wildly successful and much-loved book by Casey McQuiston. Red, White, and Royal Blue is streaming now on Prime Video, and we should note that Amazon supports NPR and pays to distribute some of our content. Jeffrey, going to start with you. What'd you think? Oh, man. I really love this book, and there are a lot of fun, fun, fun parts of this movie, but I think the film is as enjoyable as it is frustrating, unfortunately. All right. How about you, Joelle? Ooh, same boat. I think we're missing a lot of what makes the book unique and special, and we kind of get a lifetime movie version of a queer romance for straight people, which is, you know, better than what we used to get, which is nothing, but not quite what I was hoping for. All right. Okay. I'm sensing a theme. Serena, what do you think? I sit firmly in the camp that you should never read a book before you watch a movie adaptation. And I did read this book a couple years ago when it came out. And so I didn't reread it before I watched. I tried to think, like, maybe the memory would have receded enough that I could take this as it is. And I do think in some ways it mostly works as a romance. But I think what I really loved about the book so much is some of these thematic elements that maybe we'll get into and this great supporting cast of characters that I think by necessity of trying to keep this less than two hours as a film kind of whittled away some of the fun of that cast. And so I liked it kind of like maybe in the way that I liked Crazy Rich Asians, which did a very similar thing, which cut away a lot of the plot points to just really focus on the romance mm-hmm. and and building kind of like a jet-setting world. And I think it'll be fun to rewatch, but I, mm-hmm. you know, it made me want to go reread the book. So maybe that is 
Take that as you will. <laughs> a two-hour ad for the book. Okay. I want to go back to you guys. Jeffrey, go back to you. So what was missing? I mean, I, this is the through line I'm hearing you all pick up on because I haven't read the book, so I don't know what's missing. So tell me, what what did the book do that this movie does not? Yeah, I think that, you know, comparing this to like Bridgerton, which was like a hugely successful adaptation, at least in my stance, mm-hmm. Bridgerton's taking place like not in our current timeline, right? It's England. It's the past. Everyone's mm-hmm. dead. And you can like laugh at like the people in charge. But something about like the Disneyfication of like American politics kind of didn't work for me in this movie. Okay. And then also it just wasn't funny enough. There's like three laugh out loud funny lines, but everything would have been solved had you laughed more. It's lesbians. It's lesbians that are missing, Glenn. There are lesbians in the book and they're amazing. (laughs) This is true. Okay. One of the lesbians is Alex's sister. Alex does not have a sister in the movie. She's one of my favorite characters. I think she's funny. Mm -hmm. I also think for me, a key element is the book is not about two people who are closeted for separate reasons coming together and falling in love. It's about two individuals who are really trying to figure out their early 20s and happen to fall in love. And they're also caught like the queerness is an element. It's not the definition of the characters in the book. Casey writes all these amazing queer stories and they imbue all of their queer characters with queer families. And I think as a queer person, that's been a lot of my lived experience is like where there's one queer, there are seven. And <laughs> to strip that of uh, this movie of those queer characters, mm-hmm. these people who really help these characters find their way, it's not as special to me. And I understand like, okay. you know, maybe reading the book isn't great, but it's an adaptation. I can judge it as an adaptation. And I feel like we didn't quite get there. Well, here's my take. Didn't read the book. Uh, romance, not really my thing. I responded to this as not just one but two coming out stories, which surprised me. I didn't know that's what I was going to be getting in this movie. And I want to make it clear that coming out stories will always need to be told. They do good work in the world. They offer a template for people on how to come out, how not to come out. And they offer a template for straight people about how to become out too and how how to respond. And this was certainly not true when I was coming out back in the late Jurassic. But now, (laughs) 2023, it's a numbers game, right? To make anyone distinct and memorable. You have to have skill. You have to have specificity or you can – because broad strokes don't cut it anymore. What this offers, which is unique to it, is outward stakes. It makes them geopolitical. And that at least is fresh. That is new. That's not something I've seen before. And I thought the romance worked fine. I thought they had good chemistry. I thought the process of enemies to lovers, you know, the steps involved, they were ticked off nicely. Mm -hmm. Anytime the story brushed up against politics – The strokes were so broad, so ninth grade civics that I don't think this thing delivered on the uniqueness of its premise. And I can hear folks out saying there, oh, you're focusing on the wrong thing. That is kind of the point of this of this movie, right, is 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 that geopolitical element. Am I wrong? No, you're not, because they made the character Alex, who is like the son of the president. He wins Texas for the Democratic Party. But he is this precocious young 20-year-old. He, like, saves democracy. And it doesn't really, you know, it strains belief. (laughs) Yeah, I actually, I wrote down that this is supposed to be a romance of reputations, like very Austinite. And that's what works about it in the book, is that it's not necessarily, like you're saying, the story of queer coming out and queer self-acceptance, so much as it is kind of like thinking about 
your role in the world and the good that you want to do. And, you know, it's also kind of like a hybrid epistolary novel. And so I thought some of these sections of like their email exchanges, their text exchanges didn't fully live up to that. And the content of those exchanges is about we are two historical figures and we're looking back at other historical figures who may or may not have been queer, but who are in conversation with each other and thinking about how did these queer people in the past wrestle with their circumstances? How might we wrestle with our circumstances? There's a such a famous line from the book where, you know, Alex says, history, huh? But we could make some. And I was glad to see that in the in the film, but I felt like it fell a little flat because we didn't really build up to it, that these characters and their motivations and their conflicts and their struggles of like, how do I make a difference in the world involving the people I love? You know, we didn't get to that point where that like crucial line that is like so quoted, like littered all over Goodreads. It doesn't feel like this fist pump moment in in the film the way I wanted it to. It does not. And I understand we had to get rid of a lot of the pop culture references, but Casey's work is always like this love letter to the queers of the past. And it's totally ruined here. And it's frustrating because you have two perfect movies. You can take, what is it, the 05 Pride and Prejudice, and then um, you've got mail. Mm-hmm. You have the templates. Pride and Prejudice is two hours and eight minutes. This movie is just shy of two hours. And you have a beautiful cast, an array of characters, all of whom get enough screen time that you can fall in love with them or in hate with them. You understand their motives. They support their main characters. And it's beautifully fleshed out. It's like the template was there and we just don't quite hit it. I've been ragging on this movie, so I want to talk about of just a handful of positives. Mm-hmm. Sure. One, any movie that recognizes the absolute I- – iconic stance of get low by Lil John has a place in my heart forever. He's like, this is the song of my childhood. I was like, it's the song of all of our childhoods. And I love that they were like, we're just going to middle school dance it up in here. And it was exquisite. Mm-hmm. If you are a fan of romance, there are teen wolf levels of pushing people up against walls. Mm. Fabulous. Wonderful. Our two leads here, <laughs> some of the best chemistry in a romance we've seen in a long time. I think the romance movie loving community has been looking for more rom-coms in the past couple of years. Slowly, we're starting to get them. Wow. Wonderful. Lovely. Believe their romance. Loved watching it. Um, And then my very first note was like, wow, this is like a Ralph Lauren and a Calvin Klein ad just like come together. <laughs> People in sure. suits. Sure. Amazing. There's a lot to like about this film, but I think, again, just somebody who's like craving queer romance, it's just like, eh, we're almost there. We're kind of. You know, I actually disagree a bit, Joelle, about like the chemistry aspect. I found it weirdly inconsistent. Oh, really? Like, like chemistry is so finicky, right? But usually it's like there or not there. I found it sometimes there. Even in the beginning when like they're annoyed and are hating each other, you have to enjoy it, right? Like you mm-hmm. allow it to consume you so much because it's so fun to hate somebody. And I just didn't get that like enjoyment of the hatred. I'll I'll see that in that there's a little sizzle missing in the hate that like spark where you're like Y'all hate each other too much. Like, what's happening? Right. Sexual tension. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said, there it is. But my favorite parts are still when, when they're separate. To me, it's just drags. So I was like, mm-hmm. I need them to get back together in the same room because I just don't care. Other than Uma Thurman with a Texas accent, which, Glenn, how did this talk to me about it? She was foghorn, leghorn all <laughs> over the place. I didn't understand what she was doing particularly. <laughs> but let's talk about the sex. Okay. Uh, they are a cute couple. They're an adorable couple. They click. Uh, and there is always going to be a market for cute, adorable romance, but surely there's also a market for steamy, erotic romance. And I do not think this is it. Mm-hmm. I did respect that the sex was handled well. Like recently there was an online discourse about why do we even have sex scenes in movies? They are unnecessary to the plot, to which most of the internet rightfully responded, Boo. Uh, speak for your own damn self, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see some skin. 
So sex scenes delineate character. You see how someone approaches intimacy. You see vulnerability. You see between two or more people how power dynamics get kind of negotiated on the fly. It's very important. <laughs> so I did appreciate that when they first become physical – we don't just pan away to the gently wafting curtains. We get a pretty good sense of what they're doing and who's doing what to whom. Their physical relationship begins with a very specific sex act that tells you something about the relationship. I respected that. Yes to all that. But do you think that justified making this an R-rated movie? This was rated R? Exactly, mm -hmm. Joelle. Exactly. I feel like somehow, even mm -hmm. though the sex scenes that we get are explicit, it still feels sterilized, which I'm trying to wrap my mind around. Like, it was, yeah. you could just feel corporate on top of everything. In the same way that I think they were like, we want to be gay, but not too gay, which is why we moved the pansexual couple and the lesbian. Like, we'll just try to keep it in a line where people can maybe adjust. And we, a couple is divorced in the book and they're together here and it makes oh. absolutely no sense. It drives me up a wall. Like mm -hmm. the changes that were made for the film don't feel like they improve the story. They feel like they were constructed for a non-queer audience to try to be able to enjoy this movie, which I have no interest in. Mm. Oh, can we get really in the weeds about the divorced couple? Go nuts. <laughs> I don't think it's a spoiler to say in the book, the president, Alex's mom, and his dad are are not together. And I felt when I was reading this book, I'd never had this experience where at the time in like 2020, that meme about the FBI agent in com your computer was so prevalent. And I'd never felt so much of like, somebody is spying on my life when I was reading this book. Because Alex is like a 20-something-year-old bisexual Mexican-American kid who's the offspring of a multiracial marriage. And like, that's my life. I have a white mom. I have a Mexican-American dad. Mm -hmm. And I am bisexual. I also went to school in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. so put that together. <laughs> but the idea that he is grappling in the story not just with his sexuality, but with his identity and what it means to be a person of color in politics at that moment in time. And, you know, this idea that he is proud of his heritage, but also he spends most of the year living with his white mom. And that, you know, like... What does it mean to wrestle with these different identities? And so the fact that they just so neatly put the parents together does a disservice, I think, to his struggle of, like, I'm an outsider in politics, and, like, what do I want to do with my life that puts my experiences in service of good in the world? But also this idea that, like, even when people love each other, it doesn't always work out because of these forces. His parents both have different political agendas that sometimes align, but their ambitions were greater than the sum of their love. And this is also mm. the same thing that's happening with Henry's parents, where, you know, his father was this outsider to the royal institution, marries in and kind of like suffers under the weight of the crown, which is what Henry is trying to decide when like, do I want to bring Alex into this world? Which I feel like, you know, to your point, Joelle, these stakes improve the romance. And so to cut them out of the film, you kind of wonder, like, why are they struggling so much with the romance? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then to add to that, in the book, Alex has a mentor mm. who is also Mexican-American, who is also queer, who is in politics and struggling with a lot of those same things. What is my role going to be here? How much can I push? How much do I need to blend in and, and try to just make inroads? Which community am I serving in this moment? And they have, to me, again, such an important relationship when we have elder queers talking to younger queers mm -hmm. about their path and what that looks like. And it's, there's an ex in here, he's jealous and petty, and it feels like a very trashy trope that doesn't work in a story that seems to be trying to evolve beyond that. Mm -hmm. 
I'm, I'm glad y'all brought up the bisexuality of it, though. As you said, like, there are coming out stories in this, and we've had coming out stories since, like, the beginning of time, it seems like, on TV mm-hmm. and film with gay people, mm-hmm. but relatively few with bisexual people. Sure. And especially when you think, like, bisexuals are the mm-hmm. largest percentage of the queer community, right? I do think it is important that this character, like, is, like, showing us, like, bisexuality on screen and also, like, goes the other added step and, like, labels himself and says, I am bi. Mm-hmm. Like, that yeah. is something I really liked about this. Let me ask you something. Is the book told equally from both of their points of view? No. No, it's it's mostly Alex's point of view. Yeah. Okay. That struck me. On paper, I get why you do that. Uh, in the movie, too, because he's mm-hmm. the fairy tale commoner, theoretically, and, you know, Henry is the handsome prince. I understand why you do it. But Henry is in a much more precarious position. Henry's where the real conflict of the story comes from. Uh, they even could have played with it even more because the guy who plays his brother, Philip, Thomas Flynn, he, he that guy's got such a great punchable face yeah. <laughs> and he's playing him as this sneering twit and also the conflict of generations of history. So you set all this up and that gets dealt with in a single scene at the end that really didn't land with me. It didn't, again, didn't deliver on the premise that I thought this movie slash book was, mm-hmm. was supposed to deliver on. So we kind of, I guess to that point, we kind of like took away other supporting queer characters and that like made the world so interesting to like give this prince more you know, like screen time. Yeah. You all have mentioned how many supporting characters you're missing here. What else was missing? I love an epistolary novel. That's like one of my favorite things in the world. And I think the way they handled the correspondence was very busy. Mm -hmm. The idea that they kind of did a split screen method where like Alex was going through campaigning while getting these messages from Henry, you know, vice versa. And I think something that made this romance so swoon-worthy was this idea of yearning, that they have long periods of physical distance. And, you know, I don't know that I necessarily think it would have worked better as like a limited series or something or episodic as it did as a film. But I think what works so well about exchanging letters and correspondence is time baked into it to to see the development of a relationship. And I think that happened so fast. That was my favorite part of the book was their correspondence. And I feel like it was really downplayed here. The other thing I really loved about this book is the way you can love a place that may not fully love you back. Right? Alex loves Texas so much and you get to spend a lot of time either in Texas or thinking about Texas and talking about it. And I think, you know, for I have a lot of queer friends who live in Texas, who struggle with the politics, who struggle with, you know, just trying to make sense of their family and their role in it or whatever. And I feel like a lot of that is sort of skipped in the same way that Henry has this love of England, but this, he's at odds with the institution and we completely miss this idea of he's like, I hate the way this institution treats our country. I don't want to be a part of it. I'm struggling with how do I love my family? Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm missing mm-hmm. the presence of women really strongly too. There's a lot of really strong, incredible women who go through a lot of difficult cho- career choices, personal choices. And without them here again, it's just, I don't know if just two kids like falling in love is as nearly as interesting as two groups of people trying to come to terms with like, how can we support and love Mm -hmm. these individuals? Yeah. As somebody who didn't read the book, I got to say the character of Zara, the deputy chief of Mm -hmm. staff, I just think that that character 
was supposed to be kind of larger than life, iconic, quotable, <laughs> but it's not how she was directed, right? She was directed to kind of play it less. You know, I also did want to mention Anish Sheth, who plays the Secret Service agent. She is trans in real life, and but that storyline does not, you know, have anything to do with her gender or transition, and that is, like, such a lovely breath of fresh air to see, you know, a trans actor on screen just, like, doing a job and executing it well. That is, like, what we want to see more of. Yeah. I just want to encourage Hollywood to, like, cast more trans people in these, like, small roles that don't involve transitioning. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, usually when I say, well, the panel was mixed, what I mean <laughs> is there were some people really pro and some people really against. I don't normally mean, like, everybody on the panel was mixed. <laughs> it's yeah. a, a point of quibbling out of love and not out of, you know, being a hater. Yeah. Uh, so we want to hear what you think about Red, White, and Royal Blue. Find us at Facebook at Facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what's making us happy this week? Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. Now it is time. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And for our favorite segment of this week and every week, what is making us happy this week? Serena, hit me. You know, I know Linda Holmes has been tooting the horn for this book, and I just want to add my voice into the mix that I have been reading Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood mm -hmm. by Maureen Mo Ryan. I checked it out for my public library, which is also, this is a, a plug for public libraries, but I, I almost wish I hadn't because immediately I got it and I was like, I want to highlight this, I want to bookmark that, I want to underline that. Mm -hmm. It is just one of those books <laughs> that you read while you're, you're screaming, you're gasping, you're tearing your hair out, you're running to Reddit to see if you can try to unravel who these anonymous sources are and what project <laughs> they're talking about. I'm like living at home with my parents right now and I keep running to my mom and being like, you have to read this right now. <laughs> it is just one of those books that you want to talk to everybody about. As a reporter, it is like an incredible feat of reporting of how many sources that she has talked to, mm -hmm. how much knowledge she has collected, and how carefully she's thought about a lot of these issues. I think if you are a lover of media, I think it is like recommended reading. Mm -hmm. It is Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood by Maureen Ryan. Thank you so much, Serena. Joelle, what is making you happy this week? Oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, if you're aware of things going in Hollywood, if you've read Burn It Down, you might be <laughs> like, how can I, a regular person, help resolve these issues? There's a website. It's called Seed and Spark, S-E-E-D and Spark, S-P-A-R-K, where 
The mission is to help independent filmmakers create long careers through developing audiences who support them either financially or through um, trading and offering like services. The films that have come out of there are so sweet and so beautiful and so passionate and weird and funny. It encouraged me to start (laughs) going back into filmmaking. I looked at the site and I was like, maybe we can do this? Crazy. I haven't made a (laughs) film since I graduated from film school and it's just been like a really incredible experience to watch people like succeed, thrive, and launch careers that are sustainable through this space. Um, So I really, you know, if you're the kind of person who just wants to support films, like I highly recommend Seed and Spark. If you type my name in and you want to support my film, you can do that. But that's very much secondary. Like, please just go and support this amazing website that's doing amazing things. That is a great and heartwarming pick. Thank you very much. Jeffrey, what is making you happy this week? Yeah, so lately we've been hearing a lot about the culture wars playing out in country music. We don't need to go into them here. I don't think we wouldn't do that. But as someone who's from the South and is a country music fan, I don't want those things to overshadow the amazing musicians who are making just phenomenal music in country. And so what's been making me happy for the last couple of months is the new album by Brandi Clark. She mm-hmm. is one of the most like impressive songwriters. She writes for herself and others. Mm-hmm. She's also queer. And her self-titled album, Brandi Clark, is just one of my favorites of the year. And I did bring a clip if you want to play it. Oh, I hate you, hate you, hate you I fall in love all over. Swear you off like caffeine, sugar, and cigarettes. Yeah, so that's one of her songs, Brandy Clark, and the song is all over again. But the entire album is just fantastic. Thank you very much. Great pick. All right, what's making me happy this week? Subspace Rhapsody <laughs> is a musical episode of Star Trek colon Strange New Worlds, which is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Yes. Uh, it's episode nine of season two. Ain't the crew of the Enterprise encounters, wait for it, a strange space anomaly <laughs> uh, that causes them to burst into song and reveal their most closely held secrets to each other. And if you listen to that and you think, well, that sounds an awful lot like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical episode – you're right, and they know it. And this is basically, you know, once more with phasers. And they acknowledge that several times in the episode with fun little shout-outs I won't spoil. It's got a terrific opening number. Let's hear a bit. Apologies, the most confounding thing I appear to be singing. I have sick bay for you, sir. Most unusual, so peculiar. We can confirm there are no injuries. Just a daily Monday. <laughs> okay, great opening number. Uh, a, a grand finale that is corny as hell, but that kind of it kind of works, right? Because Star Trek's always been corny, and musicals are kind of corny. Gets maybe a bit ballad heavy in the middle because they've got several great singers in the cast, including Celia Rose Gooding, who was nominated for Tony for Jagged Little Pill on Broadway. So basically, solid tunes, some great voices, and for some other members of the cast, as you also heard in that clip, some great auto tune. <laughs> Most shows wait a bit longer to pull out a stunt like this, but Strange New Worlds has always had a really good sense of humor about itself, and it really pays off here. That is Subspace Rhapsody, the musical episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount+. Plus. And that is what is making me happy this week. And if you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Serena Toros, Jeffrey Masters, Joelle Monique, thank you all for being here. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. This was fun. Thank you. 
This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is, of course, Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.